I'm Gavin. And I'm Helen. And welcome. And bienvenido. Salut. Privé. And kush am did. And to the list list. <laughs> to the list list podcast. Hello. And Remember us? We are. Oh, this is our first recording in a couple of weeks. You were ill a couple of weeks ago. No, last week. I, I was ill I'm last week. Sick this week. Yeah. But. And it was also just a very long and frustrating week last week for a number of reasons. So we didn't think we could bring our best selves to this podcast. No. So I think a postponement was probably wise. Yes. I'm not quite sure we still have our best selves on this week, I but it is better. I don't. I have a better self. I have something like myself. <laughs> so anyway, we're going to be covering this quite is, a bit. Well, maybe. Yeah, we'll see. This is our pop culture podcast in which we count down through a list. We are currently working our way through the Rolling Stone greatest 500 songs of all time. Of all time. But before we get to that, Helen, what's been on the top of your list over the last couple of weeks? The kids and I went to see Ant-Man and the Wasp, colon, Quantumania, two weeks ago. Yeah. (laughs) With the weekend it came out. Uh, This is, once again, directed by Peyton Reed, who directed the other two Ant-Man films, and also directed Down With Love, one of my favorite movies, which I realized when Stanley and I watched it, and she did not like it, (laughs) two nights ago. And I put on my letterbox, and all of a sudden, Peyton Reed is popping up as somebody I've watched two movies of this year. And I was like, really? The actress who is leading the way of... People who have seen movies off this year mm-hmm. is Lois Maxwell, who plays Miss Moneypenny in the Jimmy Bond universe. <laughs> I'm an octopusy. Powering yeah. through. Powering through. Yeah. So, I like to review of Octopussy. I've liked all of your Bond reviews. Tell us about Ant-Man. Now, I, I like to look at the little uh, synopses mm-hmm. of these things and, and general comments and that. I had to laugh when somebody said, I think Scorsese's got a point. I am now waiting for you to tell me that that person is wrong. I'm just so sick of this discourse. (laughs) I'm not even going to deign that with an answer. This stars uh, Paul Rudd and Evangeline Lilly and John Ethan Majors and Catherine Newton, Michelle Pfeiffer and Michael Douglas. So in this... um, Scott and Hope, as well as her parents, Hank, and I can't remember the original Wasp's name. I can't remember Michelle Pfeiffer's character's name. That's really kind of terrible. And then Ant-Man's daughter. Senga. (laughs) Yes. They get sucked into the quantum realm and um, where... Kang the Conqueror is currently trapped and uh, they discover that MODOK is down there as well and they must defeat Kang the Conqueror and MODOK in order to get back home. And in the process, we meet lots of new characters, kind of quirky, inventive things like like a, a character with broccoli for a head. And and uh, this jelly creature who's obsessed with people's holes because he has no holes. So th- mm. this yeah. is an ant. Mm. This is an Ant Man movie. Mm. 
It's going to have corny jokes. It's, it's not going to be hugely serious. The stakes are not going to be high. They're going to be high-ish and points. There are stakes, though. You're confirming that. There that, are That's stakes. another thing I've been reading, that there, there are no stakes in, there are in this stakes. kind of multiverse. They're not very high, and it's super easy, barely an inconvenience. Right. And there is a point where you think, oh, this is really interesting that this is going to happen and that it's going to end this way. And then it doesn't. And you're kind of disappointed that, mm. that, that things end in a certain way. But it is an Ant-Man movie. You, 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 can't, you can't expect too much. So modified expectations then were met. Right. Yes. This is not a great movie, but modified expectations were met. I go, when I want darkness, I will go see a Batman movie. When I want to just have a good time and laugh and have fun and forget characters' names after. Senga. Name was Senga. <laughs> um, you know. I will go watch an Ant-Man movie. It's that somebody brought up something really interesting on, on Twitter about both Ant-Man and um, Dr. Strange, that the things that made the Dr. Strange, the, the, the visuals of the first Dr. Strange and Ant-Man movies were part of what made them really interesting. And they've kind of gone away from that. I think it's really difficult when, most of the movie is in an imagined place that's not earth as we know it it is not space it is it is this this imagined micro world mm-hmm. and you know and there are things like people have complained about the way modok looks modok was gonna look off no matter what he's a giant floating head you know, so no matter what, everybody wasn't going to be happy with a live action version of Modoc because not everything in comic books translates well to, you know, live action. And nor should it. Some things should probably be left to comic books and animation. Yes. But I digress. So I did not hate it. It is not my least favorite MCU movie of all time. What would that be? Thor Dark World. <laughs> Didn't miss a beat. Nope. Which one was that? Uh, that's the second Thor movie where he has to defeat the ice giants and his mom dies. I think I kind of liked the first Thor movie. But yes, you liked the first Thor movie and you liked the first Ant-Man movie. I did? Yeah. See, the first Ant-Man movie had aspects of like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids a movie, a Disney movie from our youth. I think that the issue that I've got is I liked the first Ant-Man movie. I liked the first Thor movie. I'm done. <laughs> I don't need to see it again. Right. I'm kind of happy with how it ended. Mm-hmm. This kind of 31 movie thread thing mm-hmm. is, is, I don't know. It just, it, it feels cash grabby. It probably is a little bit cash grabby. But if you're into it, all movies are cash. More, more power to you. All movies are cash grabby. All no, business is cash grabby. When, when you are someone who kind of grew up with the comic books 
and kind of know the history of the comic books and how many years of comic books and how many years of story there is behind this. I think you you are coming from a place where, of course, there are this many movies and TV shows and mm-hmm. stuff. And they're all... They all have something different to offer. Like I said, there you know, there are movies based on comic books that I will go to and expect something serious. There are ones that I go to and just expect fun. In Ant-Man, I expect fun. I had fun. There were fun goofy characters. I laughed. Steli enjoyed the end credit scene because it had Owen Wilson in it. So, I think Jonathan Major makes a great Kang the Conqueror. And yeah, at, you know, Good if, stuff. if you're going to go just to hate it, fine. Mm-hmm. But if you go and just expect low stakes and to and for it to be goofy and funny, you're going you're you're going to get what you're looking for. Fair enough. Fair enough. I kind of just wanted to talk about the BAFTAs real quick. Yes. Very, I, very quickly. I, I think we definitely should kind of talk about the BAFTAs and, and SAG and what we think this means for the Oscars. The BAFTAs were a great night for all quiet in the Western Front and the Banshees of Finisherin. Yes. And I think the ones that I were that I was particularly happy with was Kerry Condon and Barry Keoghan getting Best Supporting Actress and Actor, respectively. Yes. I think well-deserved for both of those. When we saw Banshees, I was kind of, this is going to get nominated for everything and win nothing. Mm-hmm. And of the ones that I expected it not to win and yet deserve was probably those two because Kerry Condon was incredibly good in it and, mm-hmm. and not in it nearly enough. No. Um, and obviously Barry Kogan put in a remarkably good performance. Yes. Um, so I'm really happy for, for the pair of them. I was quite happy to see... Fableman's not do very much. No, if anything, it hasn't really done very much of anything all award season long. But the one that surprised me the very most was well, it was Austin Butler winning Best Actor for Elvis. It's it's Best Impersonator Award. I don't know. Don't get me wrong. He was good. He was good in it. Yeah, he's, it was he's, probably he, the best thing in it, as far as I was concerned. And he's still talking like Elvis. I don't think I think he'll be like that forever now, isn't he? <laughs> it's like, it's like, Is he going to talk like that in Dune? But he beat Colin Farrell for Banshees. He beat Brendan Fraser for The Whale. He beat Daryl McCormick for Good Luck to You, Leo Grant, which I haven't seen. He beat Paul Mescal for Aftersun, and he beat Bill Nye for Living. And out of those, out of the ones that I've seen. <sighs> I think he's maybe fourth on that list. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because last year wasn't really a very heavy biopic year. This year coming up, mm. I dread to think we have so many biopics coming up. We've got Oppenheimer. We've got. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Me too. We've got Emma. We've got a number of I'm others. I'm looking forward to that also. Yes. So. I feel like it's it, this past year has been good because we've gotten some nominations for things that are not biopics because there weren't as many this year. 
Um, if if Banshees was going to win awards, it was going to be at the BAFTAs. Yeah. So it's I'm so I am pleased with that. Um, and then and then this past Sunday was the Screen Actors Guild mm-hmm. and everything everywhere all at once cleaned house I really did. cleaned house which i am very pleased about you know and i think the daniels have a good a good chance of of winning best director and the movie winning best picture i hope so kihui kwan is definitely going to win best supporting you know were you a little disappointed that jamie lee curtis won best supporting actress over stephanie sue yeah yeah I mean, it's. I think I mentioned when we were going through the the Oscar norms that mm-hmm. it's. I'm not sure what she did that was remarkable, and no, it feels like a legacy it nomination. Does. And, and fine, it's fine. It's like that whole, you know, the the thing with the the Baftas was mm-hmm. was really what's her face's uh, rap at the start. Ariana Debose. Yes. And we'd heard about this beforehand, uh-huh. so I'm watching it after the fact, and I'm watching it thinking, yeah, this is kind of cringy, but have you heard what Richard E. Grant's saying so far? Right. <laughs> because every joke that he was telling was an absolute <laughs> bomb. And uh, he- and it's like, have you ever watched Billy Crystal host the Oscars? This is, if anything, this is tradition coming back maybe not for the baftas i think people expect the baftas to be more serious no they expect stephen fry to be charming and and hilarious right that's what i expect and i haven't had that for years but no but yeah but jamie lee curtis was at least one of the people during that rap who got her groove on right she's there she she, she understands she got the memo right but uh, by far richard e grant was far more cringy (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so oscars coming up yeah not this weekend but next weekend so Mm -hmm. in addition to all that we have seen 10 movies at the at the cinema since we've last spoken to our listening several in fairness they were all short all of them short (laughs) so we're going to go through them hopefully at a bit of speed because we don't want to be here all night no but two weeks ago we went to see the animated shorts yes and the first one that we saw was uh, an Australian short called An Ostrich Told Me the World is Fake and I Think I Believe It. This is about Neil, a young telemarketer who realises that he's he's in a dead-end world, but the world that he's in isn't quite what he thinks it is. Right. What did you think of this? Yeah, this uses uh, claymation and although it's not really clay... It's some of it's clay and it some of like it's not. It looks like wall syndrome, but not. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's this really interesting concept of this kind of meta situation where this this person real comes to realize that they are part of this animation, that the world is not real. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was a really interesting concept. I felt like the execution wasn't quite there. No, it didn't have a story. Yeah, the the there's really a lack of story. The the way that it kind of showed it, the way it was presented, like a lot of it was shown through a monitor, 
while you saw somebody moving the figures in the background. At great speed. Uh, right. So the, the, the humans that are moving, the, the models are, are moving fast enough for the models to be moving yes. at 24 frames a second right. kind of thing. If, if you saw the end credits of the box trolls, you know what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I like the idea as well, but the execution, the, the execution of it was, was great, but the story was yeah. non-existent and the acting was really poor, I thought. And, and the execution was, for personally for me, it did not always work. Sometimes it was a bit too distracting and I understood why it was doing what it was doing. Right. But it just... It took me out of it a little too much. It became a little too meta. Yeah, I, I digged it. I, I would have really gone for it if I had a better story. Mm. It had a, it had a character named Gavin, though. What's not to love about that? That's Except, right. And the Gavin wasn't much of a prick. No. Usually Gavins are a prick. Yes. Case in point. <laughs> the next one they saw was The Flying Sailor. This was a Canadian short, wasn't it? Yes. And it tells the story of the Halifax explosion of 1917 through the eyes of a survivor of it. This was all news to me. The accident is two ships colliding in Halifax Harbour. They cause a massive explosion and it mm. blew the sailor a couple of miles away. Yes. And he survived. And it's the story of the sailor right. during the explosion. Right. What yes. did you think? What did you think of this one? Yeah, it blew most of Halifax away. <laughs> it was it was quite devastating, and um, I think this is this is one of those incidents that for Canadians has, you know, is deep seated in in their history because it was such a tragedy, and um, yeah, I really liked this. I, I liked. I liked the use of animation. I thought the use of animation was very interesting because it would incorporate, but it was overlaid at times with, with, with real things, mm. um, real smoke, real fire and things like that. And so I thought it was executed really well and it knew when to end. Yeah. The ending was perfect, which is not necessarily the case for all of these shorts and and one thing that I really notice with movies is is how they end and and this one did it perfectly. Yeah, while the last one about the ostrich didn't, hmm. this did. I was really confused for an awful lot of it because I didn't know what the Halifax explosion was. Right, didn't know that this was about it, and it didn't really tell you until. There was a little uh, card came up at the end to let you know. So it right. looked very much like a Radiohead video to me, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. No. And I was enjoying it on that on that level. There's like a kind of, there's a foreground and a background to what's going on in the, in the animation that I really liked. Uh, and the sailor, for the most part, is buck naked with his willy out. So yeah. if that floats your boat, no pun intended. The explosion blew his clothes off. Yeah. As as it would, yeah. It was it was one of my favourites out of out of what we saw. Yes. The next one was Ice Merchants. This is a French and Portuguese co-production, telling the story of a father and son who have a house that is literally built on the side of a mountain, mm-hmm. where they glean ice and take it down to the bottom of the mountain to the town below. Right. That's what this is about. What did you think of that? Yeah, this was uh, visually really lovely, an inventive story uh, on grief and family and climate change. Yeah. 
And, you know, and I really, really enjoyed it, except that it didn't know when to end. It ended perfectly, and then it kept going. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I kind of regretted that, that, that it chose a different ending than, than where I thought it should have ended. Um, but, yeah, I, I, the inventiveness of how these two people, this father and son, live is really interesting and fun to watch. Yep. And, and just, like I said, visually, the use of color... Yeah, the kind of vector style animation, which yeah, was just lovely. Yes, really enjoyed it. Yeah, I thought it was pretty moving. The next one was, uh, oh, yeah. this was a British effort. This was the boy, the mole, the fox, and the horse, and this is what won the BAFTA for best Be- British animated short. Now, I find that really uh, what I find really interesting is none of the rest of these were nominated for a BAFTA for animated short. And yet Ice Merchants was also in part a, yeah, a, a part British. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was surprised that wasn't there. I haven't seen the other ones nominated for a BAFTA, no. so I can't say whether or not they were terrible as well. This one <laughs> this one tells the story of a, the unlikely friendship of a boy, a mole, a fox, and a horse traveling together in the boy's search for home or a home. And this one has the most stellar vocal cast, including Tom Hollander, Idris Elba, and, and Gable Byrne. What did you think of this one? It was pretty to look at. Yes. And like you said, great, great voice acting. Mm-hmm. People I really enjoy. Yes. It was funny because uh, I rewatched About Time th- that same week. And just remember just how absolutely delightful Tom Hollander is in that movie and and how much I loved him in it. And uh, yeah, this was treacly and twee and with animals speaking aphorisms aphorisms to one another while a wee boy dies of hypothermia. Yeah. (laughs) This boy is not dressed for the weather and never really... It, it it does not go anywhere. If we complain about the ostrich one not having a story, mm. this not only doesn't have a story, it doesn't have dialogue. <laughs> it has animals <sighs> just speaking their truths to one another and to the wee boy and the wee boy saying things like, what do you think about time? What's your favorite word? <laughs> what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be kind. This, Shoot me now. This was a Live, Laugh, Love poster for half an hour. This was one of the longer ones as yes. well. Kill yeah. me. Knowing that J.J. Abrams' bad robot company was involved in this, I had hopes for a smoke monster to take care of a lot of them, bones and all. <laughs> Sadly, that never happened. Cringeworthy stuff. I don't know how it won the BAFTA. Although it gets, gets very high ratings on Letterboxd. But again, not sure why. Because people watched it during Christmas. It's got Christmas BBC are, One at 5.20 written yeah, all over it. Yeah, and that's exactly it. And the final animated short that we saw was My Year of Dicks. Woohoo! <laughs> Spoiler alert, we liked this one. <laughs> uh, this uh, was, USA, USA. <laughs> yeah, this is a, um, uh, Iceland down as the, as the country of origin in this one. Because it was directed by uh, Sarah... Gunnar's daughter, but this is very much the American version or yes. the American 
uh, short that was nominated. Yes. Uh, an imaginative 15-year-old is stubbornly determined to lose her virginity despite the pathetic pickings in the outskirts of her Houston hometown in the early 90s. What did you think of this, Helen? I liked this one. Um, it's it's done in brilliant rotoscope. It's It tells a story about this girl in the 90s trying to lose her virginity and, you know, I could relate. I've been in those rooms. I've had those conversations. I've been in those cars. You know, it it was very 90s. It was very nostalgic for me. And it had a story. It knew when to end. It had great dialogue. It was thoughtful without being treacly. And it was just, it was just really, really good. Mm. You know? Yeah, I loved it. I'd seen it before. I'd watched it on streaming before we went to see it, and I enjoyed it more in the in the movie theater, watching it with an audience and mm-hmm. seeing it on the big screen. And could you kind of get fuel from other people's reactions to it? Yes, and there were bits that I didn't think were funny the first time that I thought were funny the second time. Mm-hmm. I still thought the ending was a little bit on the nose, but I really enjoyed it. And Sometimes I, life is on the nose. Yeah, I know. But sometimes I don't want to watch movies that are like that. <laughs> but yeah, that was certainly my pick of the bunch. And Mine too. And it's what I hope picks up the Oscar in a little over a week's time. Me too. Uh, so, moving on to the live action shorts then. The first one we saw was a Danish effort filmed in uh, Greenland uh, called Ivalu. Ivalu is gone. Her little sister is desperate to find her and her father does not care. And the vast Greenlandic nature holds its secrets. What are your thoughts on this one? Uh, the pretty gorgeous scenery and drone shots in this movie really overshadows the actual story of sexual assault and and family. And so it didn't really work for me. This is based on a graphic novel. And again, you know, we when we were talking about Ant-Man... And how some things translate better than others. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the choice to to make it so big, um, in in contrast to what these images would look like on the page, really did did it no favors for me. What do you think? I think I liked it more than you did. Oh, what it really made me think of was how cheap it is to make movies that look as good as this now because mm-hmm. even like 10 years ago the idea of making a movie in the greenlandic fjords would have cost an absolute fortune mm-hmm. you couldn't have made this i think on a shorts budget no but with a drone a 4k drone camera you can mm-hmm. produce something that looks like it's off a bbc natural history you could you could expect richard attenborough to to narrate some of it oscars love Sexual assault stories. They really do. And they love children being mistreated. Yes. And this ticks all those boxes. Um, There was a little bit of mysticism going on with the appearance of a raven. But yeah, for me, it just felt like it it was a bit bland, a bit linear and a bit obvious. And I thought that let down the um, the overall cinematography of it, which Mm -hmm. was quite spectacular. The second movie... Uh, in this series was Night Ride. Night Ride is a Norwegian short uh, set on a, a cold night in December where Ebba wants 
waits for the tram to get her home after a party, but the ride takes an unexpected turn. Yes, it does. What were your thoughts on this one, Helen? Uh, the thing that I really liked about about this one was so much of the acting, so much of the humor and the tension is conveyed with facial expression and with physicality as opposed to the dialogue. And uh, I really thought it had that going for it. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a look at ableism and transphobia. And for me, it had a really satisfying ending. And, uh, and I actually really enjoyed it. I thought of, of the ones in which women were in peril, <laughs> this was my favorite. <laughs> yeah, for me, it had an awful lot of promise. The, the idea of uh, the main character with dwarfism waiting on her tram that you get the ideas kind of in the middle of nowhere right. in Oslo to get her tram back into the city centre or something like mm-hmm. that. And the, the conductor is like, we're, we're not leaving for half an hour and you're not allowed on. Right. So she thought, well, we'll just see about that. <laughs> she breaks in while he's away for a piss and she accidentally starts the tram. And right. Then, and at that point, she starts working for the tram company. Right. And I thought that was great up to that point. When we started to get into the some of the characters that she let onto the train and how kind of nasty they were and yeah that it became something else at that point that that i was definitely less interested in but it certainly had its moments and i thought it was it, it was at least telling an interesting story yes next up was le pupil this was is a joint italian and usa disney, slash disney <laughs> effort uh, a facetious coming-of-age fable that ends with a cheeky moral. What if allegedly bad girls were in fact the best? Helen, what did you think of this? Yeah. I'm I'm a sucker for little orphan kids singing in Italian. Who isn't? Who isn't? And, you know, especially if the song is humorous and fun and they, and they make goofy faces while they're singing and, and seem to be having the time of their lives... Mm-hmm. You know, each one of these wee girls were just adorable. And, you know, I loved them in this story that, you know, on the surface seems really superficial, but in fact covers themes, like you said, of good versus bad Mm -hmm. and wealth versus poverty and and levels of poverty, you know, because you expect the orphans to be the most poor in this situation mm-hmm. and and they're not really yeah it was a question of authority right that and then of course the uncomfortable aspects of fascism yes and, and the, organized religion yes you know thrown in for good measure right in a story about orphans and cake on christmas <laughs> yeah. so it, it it's doing a lot with what it's got, and I thought that it, I thought it was effective, and I really enjoyed it, and I laughed a lot, and, um, you know, am I ashamed that the Disney one is my favorite? A little. Oh, this is your favorite one. But you know, I I thought uh, uh, it was um, Alfonso Coron who yeah directed it. it produced it. And I think he was a co-director as well, wasn't he? No, it was Alice uh, Rohrwacher 
who directed it. Yeah, but you know, they, all of the pieces fit together really well for me. And you know, Italian fascism during World War Two. Who, who knew it was so catchy? Right. This is what happens if Disney goes to Wes Anderson and says, "Make a Christmas fable." This is what happens. I thought the whole thing a little bit of a Wes Anderson feel you. See, for me, it 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 felt it felt a little Guillermo del Toro yeah, and uh, and Almodovar. It's good fun, and the moral delivered by the girls at the end of the story does its best to acknowledge the fact that there is no story here. But that does it a disservice. It was it was good. The wee girls are are absolutely adorable, and like you said at the start, them singing in Italian. Telling the story in Italian, right? And a song that that whose lyrics shouldn't be put to music is yes, is wonderful. Yes, our penultimate one was the Red Suitcase, uh, a Luxembourg movie about a failed sixteen-year-old Iranian teenager who arrives at Luxembourg Airport with a red suitcase to meet an arranged husband, husband who is her father's age. Yes. Just think of this. Remember what I said about Oscars loving hmm, stories yeah. about you. Yeah, by the t- time this came on, I had enough of women in peril thanks to Evalu and Night Ride. So I don't think I was able to judge this fairly. You had enough and left. <laughs> you know, I, I I don't feel like I was able to judge it on its own merit. You know, it, and also. It's a story we've seen before. In fact, we saw it. We saw it last year. Last year, amongst the live-action shorts, you know, arranged marriage and the, the Kyrgyzstan movie Take and Run. Yes, which I think was a lot more effective and harrowing than than this turned out to be. And you know, and it also throws in for good measures. A, a little Islamophobia with the way the girl is treated by airport security. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, you know, we're, we're just going to chuck that in as well. And it just... Yeah, it's probably true to life, though. Right. It's probably true to life, but it just it just felt... It felt much more heavy going than, than it needed to be. And again, I feel like I'm kind of unfairly judging it because we already had... Sexual uh, sexual assault mm. and transphobia and ableism and at this point I was just like I just yeah I, I, I can't finish this no and 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 you didn't no I missed like two minutes mm. if that's how you remember it who am I to judge I thought it was uh, I thought it was better than you did but I, I sat through the whole thing though. Um, and also, it was an these things don't hit you the way no, they exactly. hit me. No, yeah. exactly. And uh, there was an interesting cat and mouse story on that level. I thought it was incredibly tense. I did think that Take and Run last year was a better movie. Um, and the the end of this, it didn't feel like the end of the story. It felt like it was the start of the story. Uh, what I really liked about it was the cinematography of the desolate airport at night, which I thought was pretty stunning so I, I didn't take against it quite as much but really by the this point by movie number four it even for me it was heavy going yes and the final one that we saw was something of a palate cleanser it was the irish effort 
an Irish goodbye. Yes. In rural Northern Ireland, following the untimely death of their mother, a young man with Down syndrome and his estranged brother discover her unfulfilled bucket list. Yes. What did you think of this one? Yes. <laughs> this is this one the BAFTA. Yes, as as it should. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I love we Italian children singing, I also love grown Irish men singing yeah. and drinking tea and being goofballs. And we have that aplenty in an Irish goodbye. Um, it there were little bits in this short that just really kind of struck a chord with me um, all the way through that weren't necessarily going to strike a chord with everyone. Mm. There's the, the fragile tape on the boxes. Yep. There's the, um, just the scene where, where the estranged brother and, and the, and the vicar are sitting drinking tea after the funeral and you know these these are things that that strike me on a personal level which increased my enjoyment of the effort Mm -hmm. overall i i thought it was a good blend of humor and sadness yep i i felt like it had it had the right balance throughout i thought the vicar was hilarious yeah, I agree. I thought it was a simple story. It delivered brilliantly. The dynamic between the brothers was authentic. The way that they reconcile is done at a character level, and it worked all the more, satis- or it made, was made all the more satisfying at the story level. I thought there was maybe a misstep or two in the final minutes, and if it ends the way that you think it ends, it's like this is not going to end well a month later for either of them. But overall, mm-hmm. out of the five, I thought this one was my favourite. Yeah. And I hope this one picks up the Oscar because at the end of the day, no one wants to go and live with Auntie Margaret. No. Not even me, who had an Auntie Margaret. So did I. And I don't think I'd have wanted to live with her. This is what happens when we go off for two weeks. We end up reviewing ten movies when we come back. And now we're going to get to our main event, which is the Rolling Stone 500 Best Songs of All Time, Greatest Songs of All Time even. We're going to count down from songs 165 to 161, and we will start the count this week with 165, Hank Williams, I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry. I'm so lonesome I could cry I've never seen a night so long when time goes crawling by The moon just went behind I was worried I hadn't cut that one off there. That's 165, Hank Williams with I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry from 1949, written by Hank Williams. What did you think of this one, Helen? Yeah, this was... Of all the songs he wrote, this was Hank Williams' favourite song that he wrote. Which makes it kind of weird that he put it on a B-side. On oh, a B-side to My Bucket's Got a Hole in It. My Bucket's Got a Hole in It. That does sound like a good song, though. <laughs> it's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, I really like this song. Um, I like I like the way he uses his voice. The way he draws his notes out and, and the vowels out and the syllables out of the words and everything. It just... 
it adds a bit more of a dirge-like sound to what is essentially a waltz. Mm. And, uh, and the lyrics are just really good. The imagery of the moon and the whippoorwill and the robin, you know, it's, it's not the only song on the list this week that uses the natural world as a metaphor really effectively. We'll have at least two other songs that do this. And it's not the only song where the singer uses drawing out the notes in an effective way as well this week. And, but I think this one, it, it, this one came before the others and I think it sets the tone and, you know, he, he does something really special just with his voice and with his lyrics. This is, this is a good Hank Williams song. I mean, most of them are good. The song is so old it was released as a 78. I don't think I've ever actually seen a 78. I have. I guess I guess I must have, but I can't remember what size it would have been. Would it have been bigger than a 45 and yes. smaller than a 33? Yes. Somewhere in between. My first record player could play at 78, which was great fun to play 45s or even 33s at the high speed. It made Kylie Minogue sound like Rick Astley when you play their slow. <laughs> and it made Rick Astley sound like Kelly Minogue when you played him fast. This is one of Hank's songs about Audrey, which also includes Baby, we're really in love. They'll never take her love away from me. My love for you has turned to hate. Tumultuous relationship then. Yes. He wrote this as a spoken word piece for his alter ego, Luke the Drifter, Hank Williams' fun guy, but was encouraged to put it to music by his friends. It's a country music standard. Chris Christopherson sang it in the 1974 film Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore and Chris Isaac performed it in the 1996 film Mr. Wrong. The song also appeared in the movies Dutch, The Beverly Hillbillies, Down in the Valley and Zombieland and TV shows to use it include The Virginian, which my barber is always watching when I go in to get my hair cut, <laughs> King of the Hill, which I doubt my barber is aware of and The Wire, which my barber thinks is overrated. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to our next song is 164. This is Bob Dylan with my, Mr. Tambourine. Stand, but still not sleeping. My weariness amazes me. I am branded on my feet. I have no one to meet. And the ancient empty streets too dead for dreaming. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. That's Bob Dylan with Mr. Tambourine Man from 1965, written by Bob Dylan from the album Bringing It All Back Home. Yes. Alan, what did you think of this? Yeah. I, I think I mentioned when we covered the song before. Yes. When we covered the birds version of this song, that this is the superior version. And so I am glad to see it here higher up on the list. Although it seems kind of a problem with the way they formatted this list that this keeps happening mm -hmm. where we have two different versions of the same song on the list. It kind of feels unfair to the songs that don't make it right. to the list, but I digress. Um, again, Dylan, Dylan draws out some of these words um, and his notes but here it's not evoking sadness, it's evoking weariness and and tiredness and just being done with life and and uh 
you know, it's, it's so, it's so brilliant when it's stripped down and it doesn't have all the orchestration and it doesn't have the pretty harmonies and it's just Dylan and his really raw voice. And you can believe that this is a man who is on the road, who is, who is riding the rails and is just, you know, begging for one more song from what I believe is the embodiment of death, but was based upon a real life session musician named Bruce Langhorn, who apparently had a very gigantic tambourine that he would play. Ah. Yes. What do you think? It's a wince-inducing whine too far for me, I'm afraid. Every time he sings, hey, a little piece of me dies. And it feels like it goes on for maybe an hour or two too long, and then Dylan breaks into the harmonica solo, or rather, the first harmonica solo. I don't know. It feels it's like... I've complained about his singing before, and this feels like it's about an octave higher than what he's aiming for. And I think I prefer the birds version, I'm afraid. (gasps) Shame on you. For that orchestration and for that harmony. It's... Not meant to be a pretty song. Yeah, well, this certainly isn't. Moving on then, our next song this week is 163. This is Fleetwood Mac with Landslide. What is love? Can the child within my heart rise above? Can I sail through the changing ocean tides? Can I handle? That's 163 Fleetwood Mac with Landslide from 1975, written by Stephen Nicks from the album Fleetwood Mac. What do you think of this one, Helen? A song about the experience of age, written by Stevie Nicks, who was not even out of her 20s yet when she wrote it. Uh. <laughs> it's, uh, it's one of those songs that, it's, that is uh, chosen quite frequently for daughter-father dances at weddings and one of the far less creepy um, choices Hmm. out there. Again, we have these really great, this really great use of voice and, and use of musicality to tell a story. We have really great lyrics. We have more metaphors from the natural world. Um, the moon shows up an awful lot this week. It does. It's funny how that happens, isn't it? It is funny how that happens. And again, you know, it's a very stripped down song. There's there's barely anything electric in it, if anything. I mean, there's a little bit of electric guitar in there, but it's mostly just the acoustic. And it's it's probably one of my favorite Fleetwood Mac songs. This and Rhiannon. So, yeah, it's a song I enjoy. Stephen X is my favourite out of the Fleetwood Max. This is another simple song, but made beautiful by Ms. Nix and some exquisite guitar twanging by Lindsay Buckingham. The chords aren't too complex, or at least not all of them are, but the Travis picking style makes them sound very fancy. That's where you play the bass notes with your thumb, then alternate to the treble notes with your other fingers in a syncopated rhythm. Fancy. This ditty about a father-daughter relationship was written by Nixon five minutes in Aspen, Colorado. I remember trying to park in Aspen, Colorado, and that took me about five minutes. So in the time it took me to park, she'd written this song. Surrounded by mountains and snow, she realised that there was nothing she could do to prevent the snow from crashing down. 
makes an avalanche really, doesn't it? Mm. The song predates Fleetwood Mac. It was written with the intention of making it onto Buckingham Nicks. Great name. I wonder how they came up with it. Next album. Mm-hmm. But was poached when they signed up to join the Fleetwood Macs. Yes. Yeah, she was working as a waitress at the time and, and wondering, mm-hmm. is she ever going to even have a musical Waiting career? Waiting for that break. Yeah, right, absolutely. yeah. Should have been Nick's Buckingham, but I digress. Yeah, great song. Next up, we are 162, Nick Drake with Pink Moon. Drake with Pink Moon at 162 from 1972, written by Nick Drake from the album A Pink Moon. What do you think of this one, Hill? More natural world metaphor to tell a story about something out of the natural world. Namely, gnomes. <laughs> Loneliness oh, and isolation. And, and isolation and, and depression. Yes. Fun stuff. All of things that sadly Nick Drake had a plenty. You know, his his voice is so delicate and so unique. And I say unique because in 1972, it was unique. Since then, lots of different people have tried to have, have tried to emulate the sound of Nick Drake to varying degrees of of satisfaction. Some of those people were also called Nick. Yes. There was a time where I would get Nick Drake and Nick Cave confused. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, but it um and and also, you know, people like Damien Rice and um and others of the neo folk um genre. But uh, you know, Nick Drake really kind of forged forged the path and it just it makes it makes it all the more devastating. His death at 26, that's just, you know, shortly after this album came out and, and just, it, it's, it's kind of like another folky guy, you know, one, one Mr. Jeff Buckley and in, in yep. you wonder, mm-hmm. you know, what could have been if they'd been able to hold on just a little bit longer, right. you know? Yeah. This is, this is a song I really kind of love and. And I forget about it until I hear it again. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, hmm. I really love that song. What do you think? I wasn't at all familiar with the song or Nick Drake, which fits sort of comfortably into his legacy of not being appreciated in his own lifetime. Well, he wasn't even appreciated by me after it, so I don't feel so bad, although maybe I should. And a uh, lot of the appreciation he gets is because of a Volkswagen commercial. It's another folky song. It's short and to the point, much like everything else on the album, which manages to cram 11 songs into a 28-minute runtime. And again, in keeping with the rest of the album, the only thing we hear here is Drake's voice, his guitar, and a piano. In fact, it seems that the only person who knew he was recording on an album was his producer, John Wood, who recorded it. That's taking Unappreciated In Your Own Lifetime to a brand new level. Yes. The lyrics are simple and repeated. Saw it written, and I saw it say, Pink Moon is on its way, and none of you stand so tall. Pink Moon gonna get you all. Pink Moon is a term from folklore that refers to the moon's colour during an eclipse. 
and given Drake's battles with depression, this gives the track an edge of poignancy and a bit of melancholy as he perhaps predicts his own death from an antidepressant overdose that may or may not have been deliberate. Our last song this week is 161. And now for something completely different. The only song that's not written solely by the person who's singing it. Right. This is Madonna, Into the Groove. One sixty one Madonna with Into the Groove from nineteen eighty five, written by Madonna and Stephen Bray from the album Like a Vir- Like a Virgin. From the album Like a Virgin. Well, Helen, can you dance for inspiration? Come on. I'm waiting. <laughs> that was my invitation for you to tell me what you thought of this song. Yes. Uh the only electric song on our list this week. The only one with without any folk elements, can you believe? Of all of Madonna's folky songs. The only post-1975 song. Right. And from, I think, like my favorite era of Madonna. I think early 80s Madonna is my favorite. You know, where she was, she was just coming into her own. She was different without being overtly different. You know, without trying. Which... You know, I kind of miss <laughs> when we have the Madonna of today. Someone I still admire. But, you know, anyway, I digress. Um, That's your third digression. <laughs> I'm starting to charge after the fourth one, by the way. <laughs> it's an incredibly danceable song uh, used in her movie Desperately Seeking Susan. And one of those instances where the song surpassed the movie it was written for... And, you know, because let's be honest, Desperately Seeking Susan. The can the movie came in surpassed the movie itself. I right. Think. It's just an okay movie. It's not. Is it the worst movie from the early 80s? No. Is it the best? Also, no. It's not even the best Madonna movie. And let's be honest. Well, that's not Dick Tracy, then. Madonna's movies aren't great. No. For an actress, she's a really good singer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think of, uh, of I think Evita is my favourite Madonna nah, movie. I haven't seen that. I wish sure there was more time between Desperately Seeking Susan and Like a Virgin. I thought there was, in my mind, in the history of me, there is more time between those two things. Mm-hmm. I thought, this is maybe a couple of albums after that there's been plenty of speculation about what the groove was that madonna was encouraging someone to get into with some saying this is a more overtly sexual song than like a virgin but it's madonna so sexual undertones are never too far from the surface how on earth is this more overtly sexual than a song that literally says like a virgin touched for the very first time well get into the groove boy here, her apparent inspiration was watching a man dance in the, in the nightclub. But the lyrics are abound with innuendo. Was she talking about dancing or something else? Either way, it's a tremendous, catchy bit of 80s pop 
that this era, era of Madonna was so adept at producing. Who amongst us listening to it for the first time as a kid could imagine what 38 years later would look like? <laughs> and I'm with you. I think this era of Madonna is probably my favourite, although I have a very special place in my heart for the Ray of Light era. Oh, yeah. Also. Ray of Light's good. I'll well, give you that. Well, that brings us to the end of our list for this week. Helen, what was your pick of that bunch? Uh, this is kind of tough because, you know, this is all kind of my jam. Mm. And they all have merit. They're all worthy. There's, there's, there's not a song on the list this week that I say, why is this here? And why is it ranked this way? You know? And sometimes, sometimes that happens where I understand why the song is on the list, mm. but I don't understand its ranking. I understand all of these rankings. <sighs> this is hard. This is well, maybe if you hadn't spent so much time digressing this week, you'd be able to, <laughs> to do it quicker. Uh, I'm still on some I could cry. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm, that's not what I thought you'd pick. It was between that and Pink Moon. Oh, that wasn't what I thought your second choice would be either. That's good, because my pick is Fleetwood Mac and Landslide. I do like Madonna, but it's not my favourite Madonna. No, it's not even my favourite Madonna of this album. No, so Fleetwood Mac, Landslide for me. So, Helen, tell me what happened on the polls last month. (laughs) Well, Twitter... Twitter was not very diverse with the last list that we had. American Girl got 18%, Lose Yourself got 18%, and Son of a Preacher Man got 64%. No votes for In the Still of the Night on the Twitter. Shame on you, Twitter. (laughs) On the Facebook, we get a little bit more spread out. In the Still of the Night got 24%. American Girl got 29%. Son of a Preacher Man got 23%. Lose Yourself got 12 And All the Young Dudes got 12 Wow. Somebody voted for All the Young Dudes. Was that the last one we did? Yeah. Wow. That feels like forever ago. I know. It really does. It really does. So, so yeah. That, that was our pulse. What are we listening to for next week? Next week, we'll be going down from song 160 to 156. 160 is R.E.M., Night swimming. It deserves a quiet night. It does. I'm not sure all these people understand. <laughs> 159 is The Who with Baba O'Reilly. Yes. I'm not sure the people understand that either. <laughs> no. 158 is The Meters with Sissy Strut. 157 is Sonic Youth Teenage Riot. Yes. And 156 is The Kinsman with Louie Louie. Nobody understands that. <laughs> so that about wraps it up for another week. We will be back next week with uh, songs Hopefully. 160 to 156 and some other things. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us, we're on Letterboxd. Helen is Helen Broom and I'm Gaviano, G-A-V-I-A-N-O. You can get hold of us there or you can get us on Twitter at the List of List one. You can get us on Facebook at the List of List podcast and you can send us an email on podcast at gmail.com. Please like and subscribe. I don't think I've ever said that. So please like and subscribe yes. on the iTunes or your podcast provider of choice. Yes. And we will be back next week with more of the list of lists. I almost said the talk, talk of the, of the street. street. <laughs> but bye. also bye. <laughs>